Welcome to the Wander Learn Podcast. I'm your host, Franz Tapon. In this episode, I will be reading my most infamous article that I wrote many years ago, and yet it is still super popular. Because when you go to Google and you type in El Camino de Santiago, it comes on the first page. It is called 10 Reasons Why El Camino de Santiago Sucks. This article created a firestorm. It's been viewed 3 million times. It has thousands of shares and it has lots of comments. It used to have like 700 comments or something like that. And unfortunately, um, I lost a lot of them due to a technical glitch. Some people have accused me of writing clickbait articles and and trying to you know, monetize this whole thing. When I wrote this thing, I had absolutely no idea how popular it would become. Honestly, it's absolutely incredible to me how popular this has become. When I wrote it, I thought, okay, a few of my backpacking buddies will be reading this and sharing it amongst themselves, and that's about it. Because that was the intended community. I was writing it to hardcore wilderness backpackers that I hang out with. And of course, it hit the mainstream, and most mainstream people are not hardcore backpackers in the wilderness. So I got a lot of flack and backlash for it. But at the same time, I think many people kind of said to me, hey, thanks for that. Thanks for letting me know at least a different perspective. Later this year, I'm going to do a video that kind of addresses most the most common criticisms I get for this article, and then I'll post it on the article to address those issues. Okay. So let's get into it. Here we go. El Camino de Santiago, the way of St. James, is the most overrated long-distance trail in the world. Millions have walked its path and most gush about how great it is. It's time to expose El Camino de Santiago's ugly underbelly. Before ripping into El Camino, let's start by recognizing its many benefits Next, I'll mention some features that are either good or bad, depending on your values. Then, you'll learn what really sucks about El Camino de Santiago. I'll share a few stories along the way, and in the end, I'll have some recommendations. 10 Benefits of El Camino de Santiago Number 1. You can take a shower and sleep in a bed every day for less than $10 a day. Number two, you don't need to carry any food because you'll have access to cooked restaurant meals every few hours. Number three, you don't even need to carry water. You cross piped water about every 45 minutes. You won't need to purify it either. Number four, no need to carry your trash with you for days since you'll pass a trash can about every 10 minutes. Number five, as a result of all this, Your backpack can be as light as one kilogram, which is about 2.2 pounds. To compare, my ultralight backpack on the Continental Divide Trail weighed three kilograms. However, many pilgrims prefer to lug around all sorts of luxuries and end up with much heavier backpacks of about 10 kilograms or 22 pounds or more. Number six, you don't need a map or navigation skills because the route is well marked. Number seven, the wide path lets you walk side by side with your companions, making for easy conversation. Number eight, you'll never have to bushwhack. Number nine, you'll never have to hitchhike to resupply. 
And number 10, it's flat, easy hiking nearly everywhere with occasional gentle climbs and ascents. It is graded for cars and bikes, which is even easier than equestrian trails. So there you have it, the 10 benefits of El Camino de Santiago, by the way. One of the problems I have with the critics is that they look at this article as being hyper-negative, and they actually don't realize that it's quite balanced. There's 10 benefits, there's 10 things that suck, i.e. criticisms, and then four things that can go either way. So I don't know how people read that and say, okay, it's a very super negative article. Well, it's just 10 good, 10 bad, and four in the middle. And speaking of those four in the middle, let's read those. Four good or bad traits, depending on your perspective. Number one, it's extremely social. There are lots of interesting people from all over the world to meet and talk with, but those who prefer solitude will be frustrated. So that's the good and the bad. Depends, right? Number two, anyone can do the whole trail on a mountain bike. The downside with that is that some hikers don't like to share a path with bikers. Number three, you'll walk through five to 20 rustic villages per day. That sounds great, but for those who prefer wilderness, they will be disappointed. And finally, number four, most Spaniards don't speak English well. Many non-speaking Spanish pilgrims were stunned and frustrated that despite attracting pilgrims from all over the world, the locals have hardly made any effort to learn the international language, which is English. You, however, may cherish the opportunity to practice your Spanish. Spanish is my mother tongue, so I was happy to speak Spanish. By the way, on this last point, it's amazing how many people in the comment section will say, why should Spanish people speak English? Why do you think that they should speak English? You're a jerk. You're an asshole. Da, 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 da. It's incredible. And I had to add that line in and still people would say that I'm out there saying that everybody should speak English in the world and the Spanish people should speak English. I don't know how they get that from that little paragraph. I really don't. I don't get it because I just say, This is under the category of what it could be either good or bad, depending on your perspective. So if you like to go to places where they speak English so you can communicate with everybody, you might be disappointed. You might be frustrated if that's your expectation or that's your perspective. If, on the other hand, you like the exoticness of being kind of confused and lost with some sort of foreign language or you want to practice your Spanish, great. You're going to have plenty of opportunities to do that. So it's not bad. It's not good. It just is. That's the reality. A lot of villagers in Spain don't speak English. And I don't say that's a good thing or a bad thing. Para mí no me importa porque yo puedo hablar español. Anyway, there we go. (laughs) All right. So now, finally, let's get to the 10 reasons why El Camino de Santiago sucks. Number one. Only about 1% of El Camino de Santiago is a narrow one meter wide dirt trail. 99% of it is a road, and that means it's either a dirt road, a two-track road, a paved road with little traffic, or a busy highway. It's almost never a narrow footpath where pilgrims are forced to walk in a single file. And I had to clarify that quite clearly because so many people 
who read that saying, you're a liar. There's a trail the whole way through. What the hell? Why are you talking about 1% as a narrow trail? I've, I've had to get into arguments with people and I've had to ask them, can you please send me a part of El Camino Santiago from all your photos or your website that shows that it's a narrow trail, a one meter wide trail, a footpath that requires you to go in single file? And then they would send me photos. Here, look, it's a nice dirt trail. And it's like as wide to as you can drive a car through it. <laughs> like, where is the disconnect? I mean, I realize I'm talking to the internet here where anything is possible. And people are really incredibly dense. But I'm trying to be clear about this issue. And the fact of the matter is, look at hundreds of photos of the El Camino de Santiago of pilgrims walking, and you will never see a narrow trail. And if you do, send it to me at ft at francistapon.com. Especially if, or by the way, we're talking about El Camino de Frances, which is the, the main way that most people take. Maybe I haven't hiked all the different ways to Compostela, to Santiago de Compostela, so I don't know. Maybe there's, there are some of, you know, El Camino Primitivo or something like that. One of these other ones allow you to go on a narrow trail. Okay, number two. About half the time you're on a paved road or on a dirt path right next to a paved road. Some of the paved roads have little traffic, but others are quite busy. This is another criticism that I've gotten shit for. People saying, what are you talking about? And that brings up number three. Because you're on a paved road so often, by the end of the day, your feet may feel like they've been put through a meat tenderizer. Although I've hiked over 65 kilometers in one day in steep mountains, I found it harder to do 65 kilometers in one day on the flat Camino. My feet just ache too much from all paved roads. Number four, about 95% of the time, car traffic is within earshot. El Camino often gives you the illusion that cars aren't near because you sometimes can't see the nearby paved road, which may have infrequent traffic. However, it takes just one car to remind you that there is indeed a road nearby. And again, this is an issue that, along with the paved road issue, people fight me on. And again, <laughs> I challenge them to, to try to prove that there is a paved road that either you're next to it, near it, you can hear it. It's just what happens is that people are so accustomed to the sign of sound of cars that they almost don't even notice it. Or like, okay, fine, I heard a car, it, but that was like half an hour ago. Okay, fine. But that meant that you were near a road. Whether it comes once every half an hour or once every 10 minutes, it's nearby. Okay, folks. Number five, amenities distract from any spiritual mission you may have. With endless bars, restaurants, hotels, vending machines, tour groups, you're hardly removed from the real world. This defeats much of the purpose of living primitively in a search for a deeper meaning or understanding of life. On the other hand, it's nice to have access to ice cream. Number six, the scenery is monotonous. It's endless pastoral farmland everywhere you look. Far in the horizon, you might glimpse some real mountains. The most photogenic places are the towns and villages. Since you can drive or bike to all of them, there's no practical need to walk between them. Number seven. It's a skin cancer magnet. Infrequent trees mean that a brutal sun is hammering you most of the day. In the summer, 
it's hard to tolerate. Number eight, unfriendly commercialism. El Camino has become big business where the locals are sometimes unfriendly and seem to just care about getting your money. Number nine, it's a cacophony of sounds, rumbling 18-wheel trucks, ear-splitting motorcycles, angry barking dogs, blaring music from cafes, honking horns and ringing cell phones. El Camino assaults your eardrums. At least there were no jackhammers. Oh wait, I walked by one of those too. And finally, number 10, it's hard to take a piss. There's little privacy. Cars and pilgrims are constantly passing you by. After 3 p.m., most pilgrims retire to their albergues, which are the huts, and you'll get more privacy to do your business. Nevertheless, at 7 p.m., one jogger still managed to catch me with my pants down. Ambrose Bierce said, A pilgrim is a traveler that is taken seriously. El Camino de Santiago's Dirty Little Secret Today, El Camino de Santiago is a Christian pilgrimage, but Christianity didn't invent the route. In fact, like many of Christianity's holidays and rituals, the church usurped and repackaged ancient pagan traditions and called them Christian, like it did with Christmas and Easter. El Camino de Santiago is yet another example of this. It's El Camino's dirty little secret. Long before Jesus was born, pagans were walking across northern Spain in a born-again ritual. They would finish at Finisterra, which is called the end of the world, burn their clothes, and watch the sun fall into the infinite sea next to La Costa de Morta, the coast of death. This ritual symbolized a pilgrim's death and rebirth. Eventually, pilgrims that were Christian claimed to have brought the remains of St. James to Santiago de Compostela. They encouraged Christians to follow the well-beaten pilgrimage path that the pagans had created, but this time in the name of Christianity. This long, rich pilgrimage history brings up an obvious question, which is, why is there so much road walking on El Camino de Santiago. Even though the trail has existed for thousands of years, it's mostly covered by asphalt nowadays. Why weren't the Spaniards able to preserve the original rustic trail? The reason is that although the Camino was incredibly popular during the Middle Ages, it fell out of fashion when the Black Plague, the Protestants, and the Renaissance ruined the pilgrimage party. When the Spaniards paved roads in the 20th century, they enlarged and paved over most of the dirt roads of El Camino de Santiago. Few complained, since few did the pilgrimage during the mid-20th century. However, about 20 years ago, El Camino started becoming more popular, as hiking in general became more popular. Once Paulo Coelho's The Pilgrimage Book came out in 1987, El Camino soared in popularity and hasn't stopped since. This explains why Koreans were the first foreigners to buy the rights to translate my book, Hike Your Own Hike. I never understood why thousands of Koreans bought it. Now I know. My book piggybacked on the phenomenon that the Korean El Camino book created. 
Despite all this hiking fervor, the bad news is that by 1987, Spain had paved over much of the historic Camino because the old path took the fastest and flattest way towards Santiago, which is desirable for vehicle traffic. I asked Luis, a Spaniard, who had done the trail four times, why Spain didn't cut a new path toward Santiago and avoid the roads. Given El Camino's immense popularity, surely the Spanish government has enough money and volunteers to secure easements and build a primitive, narrow footpath. So why hasn't Spain done it? Luis answered simply, Francis, this is Spain. Although his answer explains everything, it's also not a very satisfying answer. It's not clear to me what's the main roadblock for making a narrow trail that's far from roads. The answer may be surprisingly simple. Most pilgrims may prefer it the way it is. Obviously, lots of people like road walking. Otherwise, El Camino de Santiago wouldn't be the most popular long-distance trail in the world. Just how popular is El Camino de Santiago? I rarely stayed in the albergues, which are the huts, because I prefer to sleep outside than pay $10 to sleep with a bunch of people who snore and make a racket before going to bed. However, five kilometers before Santiago, I celebrated by staying at an albergue. When I signed in, I asked the lady, Is it a busy night tonight? No, only 30 pilgrims are staying here. What's the maximum capacity, I asked. 550. 550? It looked huge from the outside, but since I arrived at night, I couldn't tell just how enormous this albergue was. There's a series of buildings to house pilgrims. Incredibly, during the summer, they're overflowing. To be fair, most albergues are far smaller, hosting fewer than 100 pilgrims. Still, 100 is a lot. When I received my Compostela, which is the Certificate of Completion in Santiago, I asked one of the four volunteers what's the maximum number of pilgrims the office processed in one day. The answer blew me away. They said, On one day in August 2009, we processed 1,500 pilgrims. My mouth dropped. The line was down the stairs and wound around the streets outside. Pilgrims waited for hours to get their piece of paper. I told the man, but 2010 is a holy Compostelan year because July 25th falls on a Sunday. You'll surely break the record then, right? Unless we get more volunteers, he said. There's no way we can process more than 1,500 per day. We worked overtime to do 1,500. It was crazy. Well, guess what, by the way? They've gone well past that in the 2020s. It's hard to grasp these numbers, but here's one last attempt. When I yo-yoed the Continental Divide Trail, I didn't find one backpacker during the first 3,000 kilometers of trail. Not one. I saw one day hiker, two snowmobilers, and two skiers. Although I saw a few more backpackers during the last 6,000 kilometers, each year fewer than 100 backpackers finished the Continental Divide Trail. On a summer day on El Camino, it's common that you will see 100 pilgrims finish every hour. Every year, more than 300,000 pilgrims earn a Compostela, which means that they walked at least 100 kilometers. 
They come from over 100 countries. The volume of pilgrims is simply staggering. This episode is sponsored by Rerouted, which is creating a trusted online marketplace to revolutionize the used outdoor gear industry. This allows you to create your own adventure. You know, buying outdoor gear is super expensive and Rerouted is allowing you to do it in a sustainable and inexpensive way. For those who are buying gears, it's great because you're doing something that is environmentally responsible. You're recycling, reusing material and gear. You're also able to get it at an affordable price. So that's the win for those who are buyers. What about for the sellers? Well, you can donate to charity and you can have 50% of the sale of price go to your favorite charity. And also it's a great way just to get rid of stuff that's been accumulating in your closet and not put it into a landfill. It's a great alternative. So how do you get involved? Whether you're a buyer or a seller, you go to rerouted.co. Again, that's rerouted.co. One old guy who hiked the Appalachian Trail once told me, What makes a thru-hike great is that an ordinary person can, with much effort, finish it and feel like Superman. It's true. Few are good enough for the Olympics. But completing a thru-hike makes you feel like an Olympian. However, if doing an American thru-hike makes you feel like Superman, then doing El Camino might make the an Appalachian Trail veteran feel like Spider-Man. It's not that El Camino isn't physically challenging. The frequent pavement and heat cause many to develop feet, joint, and back problems. However, the flat terrain and easy access to creature comforts make El Camino de Santiago far easier than any of the Triple Crown trails. And that's precisely why it is so popular. Most people would rather walk just 20 kilometers on a flat path, eat a warm restaurant meal, and have a shower and a bed at the end of every day, than to walk 40 kilometers on a steep mountain trail far from amenities. If the price is more road walking and less engaging scenery, most people are happy with the trade-off. I'm obviously not, but hike your own hike. One thing is certain. As much as I am not fond of El Camino, I celebrate, applaud, and admire anyone who finishes it. In fact, I found finishing El Camino requires more mental toughness than the Triple Crown because El Camino is less rewarding to the wilderness lover than the Triple Crown is. Although I am criticizing El Camino, that doesn't mean I do not respect or salute those who hike it. My heart would soar whenever I saw anyone who's over 65 years old walking El Camino. Their stories were always the greatest and most inspiring. Comparing El Camino de Santiago with America's Triple Crown Trails Some have asked me to compare El Camino with the Triple Crown. The Triple Crown is made up of the three most popular long-distance trails in America. The Appalachian Trail, the Pacific Crest Trail, and the Continental Divide Trail. Let's compare the distances. The majority of pilgrims start somewhere near the Pyrenees, doing about 800 to 900 kilometers. Pilgrims are impressed when someone comes from Switzerland, Germany, or Austria, doing just over 2,000 kilometers. And those who start farther become legends. One guy that many talked about had walked from Jerusalem, or about 6,000 kilometers. 
Now compare these distances with the Appalachian Trail, 3,000 kilometers, the Pacific Crest Trail, 4,250 kilometers, and the Continental Divide Trail, which is 4,500 kilometers. Anyone who does the Appalachian Trail walks 50% more than even the quote-unquote elite pilgrims that come from Austria. Furthermore, consider that the Triple Crown Trails go over relatively isolated steep mountain ranges. Through hikers may have to cover up to 300 kilometers between convenient resupply points. On El Camino, you'll never have to walk more than 10 kilometers between resupply points, and it's mostly flat terrain everywhere. Therefore, one can argue that walking 6,000 kilometers from Jerusalem is comparable to through hiking the PCT or CDT because it's flatter and has far more resupply points than the PCT and CDT. By that measure, anyone who through hikes the PCT or CDT has godlike hiking abilities by El Camino de Santiago standards. The point of these comparisons is not to argue that the Triple Crown trails are quote-unquote better than El Camino de Santiago, but rather to illustrate that they are nearly incomparable. They are totally different experiences. They are so different that if you like one, you'll probably dislike the other. Hence, this explains why I think El Camino de Santiago sucks. And by the way, let me interject here. It's so funny. I think I write this quite clearly. I say, in fact, that they are nearly incomparable. You can't compare them, and that it's so silly to even compare them. And yet, everybody gets angry at me for comparing them. <laughs> so, I compare them because I think you can compare anything, right? Some people say you can't, you know, you're comparing apples to oranges. Well, you can certainly compare an apple to an oranges. They're both fruits. One has a different color. One has a different texture. They're both kind of sweet. I mean, I'm comparing them right now. I'm comparing apples to oranges. You can compare, I don't know, a, a rock to the moon. You can compare uh, Donald Trump to an iguana. I mean, you can do whatever comparison you feel like doing. I can compare the two trails, but they're so different, the Triple Crown trails with El Camino, that it's a strange comparison because they're just different beasts. But somehow that message doesn't get through when I when people read this article. Some Camino fans will argue that my way to Santiago has two major flaws. First, the alternate through Los Picos de Europa and Asturias, while scenic, made me miss out on nearly half El Camino Frances. So my journey wasn't typical. Second, by Avoiding albergues, I missed out on the social aspect of El Camino, which, for many pilgrims, is the best part of the journey. By the way, I when I hiked El Camino Santiago, and I explained, I guess, somewhere else, that I didn't actually take the main route the entire way, El Camino de Frances. I actually bypassed a certain section and kind of walked north instead of going straight through the west, and I walked through Los Picos de Europa and Asturias. Although I understand these criticisms, I hiked with enough pilgrims, and stayed at enough albergues to get a good idea about the social side of El Camino. It's true. The social opportunities are precious and unique. Unlike America's Triple Crown, El Camino attracts a truly international crowd. However, I want more than cool international people on the trail. I can get a multicultural experience in the New York City subway. A trail, for me, should take me away from civilization and deep into nature. 
And on that metric, El Camino de Santiago fails miserably. Going to the very end. Fistera. About 5% of the pilgrims do not finish in Santiago, but rather continue walking another 88 kilometers to the end of the world. Fistera. The Spanish call the place Finistera, but the local gallegos, who have their own language in the Galician region of Spain, call the place Fistera. The Romans gave its name because they believe it was the end of the earth. As brilliant as the Romans were, they did not have GPS. As a result, Fistera is a big hoax. Although it may feel like you're standing on the edge of the world when you're in Fistera, it's not the most western part of Europe. That point is hundreds of kilometers further south, near Lisbon, Portugal. What's even more galling is that Fistera is not even the westernmost point in Spain. The actual westernmost point is a few kilometers to the north. What a ripoff! Fortunately, I knew all this as I walked there, so at least I knew that I was being an idiot. Once you get there, however, you can see why the Romans thought that this was the ultimate land's end. It really feels like you're standing on the edge of the planet. You'll never believe who did El Camino de Santiago in reverse. As I stood at Fistera, I thought about a man who also stood there and would later become the President of the United States. After crossing the Atlantic Ocean, this man was desperate. His ship was leaking and would soon sink. Fistera was the first piece of ground available to him, so he landed there. However, his desperation didn't stop. The future of the United States depended on him. If he failed on his mission, the United States might collapse. With no ship, he did something incredible. He followed El Camino de Santiago in reverse. He hurried as fast as he could, eager to cover as much ground as possible. He was in such a hurry that he didn't even have time to see Santiago de Compostela, something he would later deeply regret. But at that moment, it didn't matter. He had to save his nation, and time was running out. He crossed all of Spain, often on El Camino Santiago, went over the Pyrenees, through southern France, and all the way to Paris, all of it over land and at a ferocious pace. Once in Paris, he hurried straight to the highest office in the land, his mission to beg. He begged the French for money and weapons to kill the British. The French hesitated. They weren't pleased that the American diplomat did speak French. Bien sûr. Nevertheless, the French agreed to help this rebellious American terrorist. It was June 1779, three years into the American Revolutionary War. Without French assistance, America may not have turned into the nation it is today. This partly explains why Americans returned the favor when they helped to liberate France from the Nazis 165 years later. This man, who traveled much of El Camino de Santiago in reverse, from Fistera to Paris to save our nation, returned a hero and became America's first vice president serving under George Washington. Later, the United States elected this man 
to become the second president of the United States. His name was John Adams. Beware the bitch at the end of the world. Although I usually avoided albergues, I wanted to stay at one in Fistera to celebrate the end with other pilgrims and get a much-needed shower. Although I arrived right when the albergue opened, which was 3 p.m., there was already a long line out the door of other pilgrims trying to secure a spot. After 30 minutes of waiting, I sat down to register with the woman who runs the albergue. After handing her my credencial, which is the pilgrim's passport, she said, You cannot stay here. Why not? I asked in my fluent Spanish. Por qué no? You do not have enough stamps on your credencial. The trip from Santiago to Fistera takes three days, so you should have three stamps. You only have one stamp, so you can't stay. I told her, Santiago is only 88 kilometers away. It doesn't have to take three days. It took 48 hours to do that distance. Besides, I never stay in albergues. I sleep outside. Do you want me to bring all the pilgrims here who saw me walking as witnesses that I really walked here? Or do you want me to show you the photos of the last 88 kilometers? No, she said. You should have gotten your stamps, even if you don't stay at the albergues. But sometimes the albergues are 100 meters off the trail, I told her. Do I have to go out of my way for a stamp? Yes, you should. What about the fact that at one of the albergues, there was a sign saying that the woman with a stamp wouldn't return until 5 p.m.? I was there at 2 p.m. Should I have waited three hours for her just to get my stamp? The woman shrugged and said, Those are the rules. Without stamps, to prove where you are, it's possible that you took a bus all the way here. I smiled. Her logic was funny, especially since she might be able to smell that I hadn't taken a shower in a couple of days. She might have noticed the disheveled shoes that I had been wearing for the past 18 months of travel. I should have put my shoes on her table to show her that they had no soles and they had holes in them, because they were the same shoes that had walked to the top of a volcano in Nicaragua, ran a half marathon in Estonia, traversed a Bulgarian mountain range, climbed the tallest mountain of Ukraine and Western Europe, visited over 35 European countries, and crossed the Pyrenees and El Camino de Santiago. Instead of telling the evil gatekeeper all that, I looked at her silently, wondering if reason would enter her skull. She glanced at my Yankee passport. Given the country you're from, you should know better. Your country has all sorts of strict rules for entry, so you should be able to handle what we ask you to do. I thought about showing her my French and Chilean passports. However, I preferred that she labeled me as an ugly Yankee rather than a French or Chilean snob. So I sighed, stood up, and left. She registered the next pilgrim who looked so clean and carried a tiny day pack that might make you think he had just walked off the bus, but was registered because he had the right number of stamps. While she was busy with him, I sneaked into the albergue. The tyrant didn't catch me. I giggled like a child as I took a hot shower. I dried off, said farewell to all the pilgrims I had met along the way, and left the albergue smiling at the bitchy guard woman. I should have flipped her off, but my wet hair clued her in that I was having the last laugh. It had taken me 25 days to traverse the Pyrenees from the Mediterranean to the Atlantic Ocean. It also took exactly 25 days to walk El Camino de Santiago from Saint-Jean 
Piedipoch to Fistera. In sum, it took me 50 days to walk across Spain twice, once south to north and once east to west. The ending of all long-distance trails that I have done has always been bittersweet. With El Camino, however, it was only sweet. I had no sadness that the journey had come to an end. With the Pyrenees, I was happy to have done it and sad that it was over. With El Camino, I was happy I had done it and I was happy it was over. Here are my recommendations. Number one, do not go in the summer. First, it's the most crowded period. Albergues are usually full and people can get cranky. Second, summer in Spain is brutally hot. Go during any other season, even winter, which sees little snow on most of El Camino. Second recommendation, unless you love road walking, bike El Camino de Santiago. Mountain bikers can travel the exact same path the walkers use. Most say that you only go twice as fast on a bike because of the muddy parts, climbs, and irregular surface that slows you down. However, a decent mountain biker should be able to go three times faster than a walker. Typical bikers cover 40 to 80 kilometers per day, and most walkers cover 20 to 40 kilometers. A good mountain biker could do 100 kilometers a day, allowing you to go from France to Santiago de Compostela in less than 10 days. Number three, it's also possible to use a road bike the whole way because there is almost always a paved road that is parallel to El Camino. Fast road bikers can cover 150 kilometers per day, allowing you to do the whole Camino in less than a week. However, I don't recommend this because biking on narrow paved roads with car traffic is dangerous. Instead, take a mountain bike and stay on El Camino. Number four, hike a similar route that I took. Start in Andai, France. Follow El Camino de Santiago del Norte until you're north of Los Picos de Europa and then climb up, which is going south, into the National Park of Los Picos de Europa. Once you're in the middle of Los Picos de Europa, head west, crossing the Asturias region, connecting many of the existing paths. Continue until you cross El Camino Primitivo, yet another designated path to Santiago, or until you get to Ponferrara or Lugo, at which point you'll rejoin El Camino Frances. From there, join the herd to Santiago. This is the best backpacking route one can take because it focuses on scenery, solitude, wilderness, and mountains. It is certainly the hardest way to Santiago, but it is worth it. Consider El Camino del Norte. As I've mentioned before, El Camino Frances is just one path to Santiago. The northern route runs near the coast, offering ocean and mountain views, which are nicer than the views of El Camino Frances. You'll have more up and down terrain, but it's worth it for the views and the varied geography. Also, the northern route is less popular than El Camino Frances, so you'll enjoy less competition for the facilities. However, there are not that many albergues, so in the summer they can fill up quite quickly, so be prepared to camp if you go during the summer. Although it's not as well marked as El Camino Frances, it's fairly well marked, so you don't have to invent some route through Asturias as I did. It has roughly the same amount of road walking as El Camino Frances. For those who want a less crowded Camino, yet still want to taste the experience, this may be the best way to go. And my final recommendation is, 
hike the Pyrenees instead. Forget El Camino. Do the Pyrenees. It's far more challenging, but far more rewarding. I adored the Pyrenees. The best trail is the HRP, which is the High Route Pyrenees. Next is the GR11, which goes on the Spanish side. And the least amazing, but still great, is the GR10, which goes on the French side. There are still plenty of comforts in the Pyrenees, thanks to the Refugios, where you can get a shower for less than $5 and a meal for about $10 or $15 and a bed for less than $30. The scenery and adventure are as great as the John Muir Trail. In conclusion, many have romantic visions of El Camino that are not realistic. The media doesn't help. One brochure about El Camino with 50 photos showed photos of civilization, which is, you know, towns, churches, and bridges, about 80% of the time. Only 10 of the photos showed El Camino itself, and none showed El Camino on a paved road. Photos on websites also emphasize the man-made structures and not nature, hiding most of the everyday reality of El Camino. Let's hope you learned about the side of El Camino de Santiago that few talk about. If you do decide to do El Camino de Santiago, at least you will know what you're getting into. Happy trials! I mean, trails! Buen Camino! And while you guys are listening to this, I hope you enjoy the podcast. Go listen to a podcast I had with Susan Alcorn. Go search for it on your podcast player. And I talk about alternatives to El Camino Frances, which is the main thoroughfare and she and I discuss it, and, and it's definitely worth listening to. Like I said, I'm going to have another podcast and video addressing some of the common criticisms that this article generated, because I do think it is widely misunderstood. And although I addressed some of them in short fashion in this podcast, I think it deserves some more explanation. And I hope you like that podcast on El Camino de Santiago. And now it's time for Question of the week. And, and before I get to the real question of the week, I'm going to answer a question that you might be asking yourself, which is, why did I not produce a podcast for the last month? Huh, good question. Basically, I've been moving quite a bit. I was in the mountains of California, then came back down to the Bay Area, and then I drove across California, Arizona, New Mexico, and then finally ended up in Texas. It was fun because I got a bit nostalgic as I crossed not only the PCT, but also the CDT, and quite close to where I began my CDT journey down in Lordsburg. But that was not the question of the week. The real question of the week is from Yida, and he asked basically two questions in one, so I'll address them both. He said, I wonder if I've ever gone gorilla trekking in Rwanda. So the quick answer to that is no, I have not gone. And then he kind of alludes to why maybe I didn't go. And he says, I'm also curious about the economics of safari tourism in Africa. A gorilla permit in Rwanda is $1,500, while the GDP per capita in Rwanda is only about $800. Safari adventures for foreigners cost a lot compared to what locals spend. But hiking and camping for leisure also seem to be more of a North American thing and not universal. Do locals go on much cheaper packages available for citizens only if they ever want to see wildlife? Yida, who is one of my patrons and got priority for the question of the week, asks a great question and makes a great observation. 
and a couple of observations. One, he's absolutely right. A lot of wildlife tourism in Africa is vastly out of reach and out of price range for the locals. Number two, another great observation he makes, which is correct, correct, most locals don't really care that it's out of their reach because they're not that interested in going on safaris. And, and, and the reason people might say, well, Francis, you know, you're just saying that because, you know, they're not going. But the reason they're not going is that they can't afford it. No. I climb the tallest mountain of every African country, at least 50 after, 54 of them. And many, if not most, of those mountain peaks were not tourist destinations. Going to the tallest mountain of Guinea-Bissau, for example, is a tiny little hill. Going to the tallest mountain of Gambia, even smaller, it's only 54 meters. And even some of the countries that have relatively big mount- mountains, let's say like Lesotho or South Africa, they're free. There's no cost. You can climb up them. They're nearly 4,000 feet or more. I mean, they're, they're pretty decent hikes, but I never saw locals going up there and doing it. So even when the price is free, you just have to get there and walk up the mountain. There were no tourists, local tourists, should I say, doing these treks. And so that's why I say it's a cultural thing. They're just not interested. Another one of my examples is in Zastron, where I spent several months in Zastron, South Africa. There's a beautiful, wonderful peak right there next to Zastron. Literally, you can walk out your front door and do it. And in fact, I did it every morning. It took me about 45 minutes to run to the summit. And most people, they're going to hike it. It's going to take maybe an hour and a half. But it's definitely doable on a weekend trip, that kind of stuff. Almost never saw locals. And forgive me if it's a racist comment, but when I did see locals, they were almost all white South Africans who were going up to the top. I rarely saw black South Africans, even though they were the majority around Zastron. Zastron, the town of Zastron. This is just my observation that people in Africa often don't have a great interest in either going to see uh, wildlife or doing safaris. I'm not saying that nobody has interest in that or that it's not. I'm just saying, relatively speaking, it's not a huge popular item. I would say that most Africans are, when they want to take a vacation, they're more interested in a quote-unquote traditional vacation, not camping out in the woods. Because there are a lot of people are roughing it as it is or living with power cut and, and for them their idea of a nice vacation is not going to a place where there's no, you have to fetch your water and where you have to cook your food underneath a, uh, a fire. No, their idea of a, a fun vacation is going to a nice four-star, five-star resort where everything works, everything's nice, everything's clean, everything's perfect. That's their idea of a vacation. They And, and for high-income country people like North Americans and Western Europeans and Europeans in general, for them, they already have that stuff every day. And so for them, they want to go out and experience a more simple, primitive way of life. Well, most Africans are not interested in that when they go on vacation. And that's a long, long answer to address his question. And finally, I'll, I'll do one more thing. That many countries, I'm not sure if Rwanda does it, but I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure they do. Many countries do offer a local rate which is sometimes free or very, very cheap. For example, if you want to go up Kilimanjaro and you are a Tanzanian citizen, you can go up there for a much, much cheaper price than foreigners pay. So they often have foreigner price and local price for a lot of these activities that are popular tourist things. So now, is it so cheap 
perfectly aligned with the GDP per capita? No. Even though it's heavily, heavily discounted, it's still quite expensive for locals, relatively speaking. But in some cases, they actually make it free. I remember also the, the tallest mountain of Ghana. That was really, really cheap for locals, and I think it was free. Long-winded answer for already a long podcast, but I felt it's a complex topic, and so I hope, Yida, you enjoyed the answer or at least learned something from it. And for anybody else who wants to submit questions for future podcasts, go ahead and submit them to ft at francistapon.com. And that concludes this episode of the Wander Learn podcast, where we explore travel, technology, and transformation. If you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we talked about, or if you'd like to comment on the show, or if you'd like to ask me a question, then go to wanderlearn.com and click on this episode. If you'd like to connect with me, just remember FTAPON. That's my first initial and my last name. FTAPON is the username I use on all social media. You can also get to my website by going to ftapon.com. And here's one last reason to remember FTAPON. If you like what I do and would like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com slash ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. And now for five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the Wander Learn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it somewhere. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon encouraging you to wander and learn.